please remain standing at this time. And if you have a Bible, open to Matthew 18. We're going to read two different passages of Scripture this morning. Uh, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. And then I'm going to immediately transfer over to Matthew chapter 20, which is a little bit, a couple chapters ahead. Uh, verses 20 through 28. Um, both of these scriptures go hand in hand, and they're both very valuable to you and to your growth this morning. And so I want to read both of them. Um, as always, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen behind me. But Matthew 18, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then turning to Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this would have been the disciples James and John's mother, they came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And Jesus said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless this word in your life this morning. Please be seated. Well, good morning, White Oak. Today is going to be an amazing day. We have tables set up in the front on a beautiful Houston day, one of the three beautiful days we get every year, right? A lot of beautiful days, but not with the perfect temperature, right? That's always like the wild card. And we're going to share a fellowship meal after this, and it's going to be wonderful. I want to encourage you to stick around for that, to slow down a little bit. You know, if you're like me, you need to slow down and quit rushing around everywhere uh, share a meal with your church and uh, with your family, and we're going to play some egg toss and all that kind of stuff, and I don't want anyone thinking they're too cool for games, you know. Um, my wife's heading it up, so you better play them, okay? That's all I'm, I'm going to say, right? You better make her feel encouraged. I'd really appreciate that. She's actually not here this morning. She's in the kids' area, but um, as always, welcome to White Oak. Um, if you're new or visiting, my name is John Wethington, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and um, for those of you that are um, kind of members of, of White Oak and, and people who are part of like the family here, um, I just want to take a moment real quick and just say I love being your pastor. I feel like I don't say that enough. I think I assume that and I assume that you know that. And yeah, I just want you to know that I, I absolutely like love being your pastor and opening God's word for you. I, I don't take this moment lightly because we have about 30 to 40 minutes to come together to open the word. 
And I believe the word of God is powerful and has much to save for your life. And so I want you to know that as we prepare these sermons, both James and I or whoever's preaching, we do this with much care and much concern for you. And so I just want you to know as I preach this morning, um, I don't preach as a, as a perfect person or as a person who's just totally nailing this whole Christian life thing. Um, like everybody else, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm living in wonder of the gospel. And I, I think it's important for me to, to kind of make that known because I think a lot of times when people look at pastors or people that kind of lead in the church, they think we're like professional Christians, you know? Um, like I'm, I'm basically like paid to be a Christian almost. And um, it, it's interesting because uh, I think I have to really be careful because I think, I think the platform can kind of give the wrong impression that... Um, this Christian life is so much easier for me than it is for other people, and, and the truth is it's not. Um, as we come before the Word of God this morning, and as we come before this text, I, I just want to say that I, I am not worthy to preach this text. I, I was going over this this morning, I mean, I mean this past week, kind of preparing for it, and, um, you know, it's one of those sermons, like you're reading it, and it's like, man, like not only do I have to do a couple of things different, like I really need to reorient my life. But I really want to affirm to you this morning that I am on this journey with you, church. I am relearning how to do my life because the life I lived before Christ was not the life God had for me. And I realized that and I turned. And yet it is a thing by thing by thing development. My wife used this really good illustration this week that she kind of came up with when she was kind of spending some time with the Lord uh, this week. And she goes, it's kind of like whenever um, before Christ, like you're living in this house by yourself and then you get saved. And it's like Jesus moves into your house and he moves in and it's like one by one, he begins going through the rooms of your house, which would be your heart, and begins clearing them out room by room by room. And it's funny because um, as, uh, as he's going room by room, some of the rooms you want to stand in front of and say, don't go in that room, Jesus. I really, I don't want you to clean that room out. You know, you can clean that other room down the hall because I'm, I'm, I, I'm okay with that. But there's some parts of our life that we just don't really want touched. And I think part of this morning is one of those things. And yet this is going to be very refreshing, I believe, to your soul. The title is called this morning, The Places We Find Greatness. The Places We Find Greatness, And I take that word greatness simply out of our text this morning. Both scriptures that we're reading about this morning and studying are about people coming up to Jesus and asking, what does it mean to be great in this life, right? Who wants to be great? Raise your hand. Who wants to be great? Everybody wants to be great. Everyone wants to kill it in life, wants to be successful. Everybody wants to be viewed as um, someone who's on the right path and doing the right things. And yet the problem is, is that most of us have a misconception about what greatness is. And I think that this is going to turn a lot of our worlds upside down this morning as we consider these passages. You see, I'm a competitive person like many of you. I love challenges I like to win. I want to be great. I don't want to be mediocre. I definitely don't want to be poor, right? Like I want to be great. And yet the world defines greatness in a very different way than Jesus does. The world says greatness is money, power, fame, or maybe even earthly success. That's what greatness is, right? Greatness is climbing the corporate ladder, Greatness is everyone thinking highly of you. Greatness is a mansion in Beverly Hills. Amen. Man, that, that's what greatness is for many of us, right? Greatness, most people don't think, is a thousand square foot house in Oak Forest. Is it? 
That's what I have, right? People don't walk up to my house. I mean, we have a decently nice house, but people don't walk up to my house and think this is a great house, right? Great house is 300,000 or 3,000 square feet, pool in the backyard, nice lot, family-friendly part of the neighborhood. That's what greatness is. Greatness is having a bunch of people serve you, isn't it? That's what greatness is, right? Greatness is having the ability to speak and people move. Greatness is having power and access to things. Greatness is Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, LeBron James, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates. That's greatness in our world as defined by the average person. Famous, powerful, rich, and noteworthy. And what will happen often in life is when we begin to define greatness wrongly, we begin to live the wrong kind of life, the life that God does not want us to live. We set this trajectory in life going the wrong direction because however you define greatness will completely control the trajectory your life takes. Because we all set the standard of of greatness somewhere and then we walk towards that standard. Isn't that what we do? This is great, and so I'm walking towards that. So if greatness is a bunch of money, we live our life for money. If greatness is about being respected and revered by people, then we try to build a platform in life and get people to respect and revere us. Greatness defines how we live and what we do, and yet what Jesus says today is that greatness is very, 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 very different than the way the world often defines it. And when we hear the words of Jesus this morning, I promise you, it's going to be a complete 180 from what you may think greatness is. But let's dive in together this morning. Let's look at our first text, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So the disciples, like we are this morning, Coming to Jesus and saying, okay, in the kingdom that you're bringing into the world, who's the greatest, right? Because, you know, we want to be great, right? We want to do great things. And in verse 2 it says, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. The first thing this morning is that to be great, we must live like children before God. When you think about God, it's kind of a mind blowing concept, isn't it? Think about God. He created the entire universe, He is sovereign over everything in the world. God the Father is a spiritual being, meaning He's invisible, right? I primarily believe because in terms of of a body, that would make God more omniscient. He can be everywhere. He can see all things, right? God is spiritual. And so when you think about God and how you relate to God, that can be a hard thing to think about, can it? And the wonder this morning is that all throughout the Gospel of Matthew and leading up to our text, there is this consistent and this powerful theme in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus says when you think about God, you should think of him as your heavenly father, Isn't that amazing? 
that we, we, God could have defined um, himself in any way, and he chooses to define himself as a heavenly, loving, providing, and good father. That this morning, if you're here, we've got a lot to talk about, but maybe the word God has for you this morning, if you don't get anything out of this sermon, would be to be reminded in your life, though you may be worrying, though you may be frustrated, though you may be fearful, God is reminding you this morning that he is your father and that he loves you and that he promises to provide for you if you will be his child. How comforting of a promise this is that he's a father. You can't miss this part of the Christian life. It won't make any sense because Jesus taught us to relate to God as a father. He says, when you pray, pray our father in heaven. Come to God like a needy little child. We can't miss this part. And yet we also, we are children, the scripture says, and we can't miss this part either. Some of us in this room need to start taking ourselves a little bit less seriously. Maybe the word for you also this morning is just to maybe loosen up a little bit in life. And I think when we think about greatness in our life and what greatness looks like, we think greatness is a really successful responsible, mature, and organized adult. That's what we think greatness is, right? And so I've got a picture here this morning. This is Donald Trump. And this isn't political. I don't care if you like Trump or not, right? But this is Donald Trump because I was starting to think, like, who is the person who a lot of people think is successful and great in our world? And we think Trump, right? So this is him looking as good as Trump can look, I think, and uh, dressed very nicely. His clothes probably cost more than all of your cars, okay? And he's in a room that I'm, I'm guessing that's gold everywhere, right? He has more gold in his room than we will ever see before our eyes in one time. And Donald Trump literally has a tower in the middle of New York City, which is the most like influential city in the world, that literally has his name on it. It says Trump. He has a tower in the middle of the city. Trump, by many people, is viewed as great and powerful and successful, and yet the reality is, is that God will judge Trump the same way he'll judge me and you, based upon the way he defines greatness and his ability to live as a child before God. Go to the second picture. This is my daughter, Molly. This is a child. This is how Jesus, in our text this morning, says greatness looks like. And he's communicating to us something in this picture. And if you're wondering, yes, those are Cheerios that are literally stuck on her pants. I posted this on Facebook a few weeks back. So my daughter, like, loves Cheerios, okay? Like, she's all about that. She's, like, all about that Cheerio life, you know? Like, she loves eating. She's, like, her favorite food. And so my wife, being the really good wife and mother that she is, decided since she likes Cheerios, she got her these ones that are, like, um, kind of sugar-coated a little bit, you know, because they kind of taste better. And so what the problem is is that my, my daughter will, will like try to eat the, the Cheerios and she'll kind of slobber on a little bit and she won't get it in her mouth and it'll fall in her pants. And like a Jolly Rancher, it'll stick on her pants because the sugar gets stuck. And so literally we're in this season of life right now where we have a little child that, that like crawls around on the floor with like Cheerios on her bottom all the time. And it is the cutest thing in the world. And in her hand is a little small body wash bottle because for some reason, that's like her favorite toy. We buy her toys and she loves a little mini body wash bottle and it rocks her world. And Jesus says that this is what greatness looks like. 
that if we will humble ourselves like a if we will humble ourselves like this before God our Father, that we will be great in the kingdom of God. But what does that mean? Okay, so humble yourself like a little child before your father. To become like little children. I think what it means is that ultimately to know God and his ways and to receive his provision in your life, you have to be humble because pride will kill you in this life. Pride will destroy you. It will ravage your life. Pride will limit you because you won't listen to anybody, so therefore you won't learn and you won't grow. If we don't become like a child before our Father in heaven, we won't let him instruct us and, and, and guide us in the good life. I was thinking about it this week, and I came to this idea that you can't be a know-it-all and know God. You can't be a know-it-all and know who God is. You can't approach God with this posture of you have it all together, you have all the answers, you know what needs to be done, and God needs to get on your agenda. You see, oftentimes people act like they're searching for God or looking for a God, and they go out into the world, and they're looking for a God that they can fully understand, and they're looking for a God that they fully agree with morally, because heaven forbid if God ever told you to think differently about something. And yet if you're looking for a God that you fully understand and you fully agree with, you're not looking really for God. You're looking for ego confirmation in your life. You're looking to find someone in this life who will make you think you're right about everything. I think this is the problem we get into in marriage a lot of times. We marry somebody and the whole point is like, okay, now I've got to craft you to be the exact person that I want you to be because I know exactly what a spouse should be. And I'm going to let you know what that is every single day. If you will not humble yourself to one another, you will not have a good marriage. And if you will not humble yourself before God, you will not grow and you will not enter the kingdom of God. Because God is good. God is glorious. God is holy. God is wonderful. And not only is God good, but God is far better than you could ever even imagine. You can't have wonder in your life. You can't have amazement of God and understand everything. If you want to understand everything, then the goodness of what you'll understand will be limited by your finite mind. We want to understand God, and the problem is he's way too good to be fully understood by us. When you want to fully understand everything about God and, and why he does everything in your life the way that he does it, what you're ultimately saying is, I want you to limit your goodness, God. We were talking about this in a community group this week. And uh, have you heard about that new thing called Blue Apron? They're marketing all over the place. It's like this, like they deliver like home-cooked meals to you. Raise your hand if you've heard of Blue Apron. Maybe a few people, yeah. Oh, man, yeah, that word's getting out of it. They're marketing really well. So, but Blue Apron is this, um, this new company. And the whole thing is what they do is they, uh, they basically will um, mail you, I don't know how it works exactly, but they mail you meals to your house that you cook. And they mail you all of the ingredients, right? They mail you everything, right? So if it's enchiladas, I guess they mail you like the, like the tortillas and the cheese and the meat and all that kind of stuff, right? And so they, they send you a meal and you cook it, right? And the problem, I think, for us is it's like if they send you enchiladas, what they want you to cook is enchiladas, 
And if they send you spaghetti, what they want you to cook is spaghetti. And the reason why it's important to humble yourself before God is because if you don't do that, if you don't trust God and if you don't trust his provision, God keeps giving you things and callings and abilities and you're trying to create something out of it that he doesn't even want you to do. God is sending you enchiladas and you're trying to make spaghetti out of enchiladas. It doesn't work. You see, so often we're frustrated in our life and we feel like God's not coming through and the reality is maybe God wants you to do something different than you're trying to force. This is the wonder of trusting God that every morning when you wake up that he is providing for you, that he has something for you to do, and ultimately he is going to be good and he is going to provide in his perfect ways. This is the way that we are to live as trusting children before our Father God. Like, just imagine tomorrow if you knew for like 100% sure That when you woke up tomorrow, God was going to place the right people in your life because he loves you and the right things to do and the right situations and the right circumstances that you need. He's going to provide the right emotions. He's going to provide everything perfectly for you to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. How much more less stressed out would you be? Yet the problem is we wake up and we're always questioning God and we're always questioning God and we're always questioning God and we're not living like children. And yet Jesus says that greatness in this life begins when we humble ourselves that we don't know everything and we live unto God like a father. I love this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What Paul says in that moment is that what God has prepared for those of us who trust him isn't even fully what we want. It's even better. Church, may we be children that trust God daily and that trust that he provides for us because scripture reveals he is our father. But the second thing is this. Let's look at our our text, Matthew chapter 20. Same concept, a little bit different application here. Verse 20, Matthew chapter 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this would have been James and John, two of the disciples, they were brothers. Uh, Their mom comes before Jesus with her two sons. And I love this part, okay? It's a mama rolling her two kids up to Jesus and asking for something, right? Right? And the scripture doesn't give like the full backstory, right? So uh, I'm going to infer a little bit, and maybe this isn't the case, right? But I, I can almost just imagine that like John and James are talking at the house one day, right? And they're like saying, man, we want to be great. You know, we, we're following, like, we want to be great in the kingdom, you know? And like the mom is in the conversation. She's like, well, why don't you just ask him if you can be great? Like, why don't you just ask if you can sit in his right and left hand? And, and, and they're like, mom, we can't do that. You know, it's Jesus. You can't, can't just ask stuff like that, you know? She's like, well, of course you can. Just go ask. You know, that's how mom does. And her mom pulls her kids up, you know, pulls the kids up, and she says, hey, Jesus. And he's like, hey, what, what, what do you want? And she's like, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. She's a good mom, right? She wants her kids to be great, doesn't she? I feel that as a parent. I have a daughter. I think she's the, like the best 11-month-old that's ever existed in the world, right? I want my daughter to be great. I don't want her to be average. I mean, I want her to be great in whatever she decides to do. I want her to be great. 
And this mother wants her two kids to be great. And yet what Jesus says, I love what he says. He says to this woman, you do not know what you are asking. And in this moment, Jesus begins to redefine what greatness is. Because look in verse 24, it says, And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at these two brothers. And so what begins to happen is that the other ten disciples are like getting frustrated at these other two, maybe because they assume that they put their mom up to asking Jesus if they can be mighty in the kingdom of God, right? So they want to be powerful and authority and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus, seeking to bring peace among the twelve, says, But Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And so what he says in this moment is, you know in the real world, you know in the world that you're living in, that people that have authority hold it over the people who are in their authority. They lord it over them. They, They make life more difficult for them. That in this world, when you gain authority, you value people less. And yet Jesus turns everything upside down and says, in reality of the kingdom of God, when you have authority, you value people more. When you are in authority, when you are a leader in the kingdom of God, how beautiful it is that we ascribe more value and more dignity to the people that maybe we have authority over. He says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. This is radical. Don't just hear this this morning, kind of, okay, glance over it. This is amazing. The fact in the first passage that Jesus would call a little child and say that this is what greatness in the kingdom would look like is completely countercultural because in Jesus' day, kids were not viewed as highly as we often view them in our world today. This was a bunch of young men in their prime, wanting power, wanting to be great, wanting all these things. And Jesus gets a little child, probably sets him on his lap and says, this is what greatness in the kingdom looks like. And then he says in this verse that the greatest among you must be your slave. So Jesus uses a child and a slave to say what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. Of God. To be great, we must live like servants of others. To be great, you must live like a servant of others, not a master of others. You see, kingdom greatness is not powerful, but empowering. Kingdom greatness is not powerful, but empowering. Your greatness in the kingdom is not dependent upon how much you accumulate, but how many people you empower in your life. And this is so countercultural because the, the narrative of our culture is constantly make a bunch of money for yourself so you can retire by the age you're 40, right? That's like the big thing with my generation. It's like retire by the time you're 35, you know? Make, you know, $3 billion in five years by creating this online business. You know, that, that's like the, the talk of the day. You watch like those television shows, and, and the worst television show on HGTV is the Beachfront Property Show. You ever watch that? I watch that, I just like, I just lust, you know, and I got to turn it off, you know. People literally go live on this beautiful beachy island. They basically just leave all the people in their life. 
they leave society and civilization, right? And they live on this beachfront property, and I guess they've already made all their money, so they just go and hang out at the beach every day. And let's be honest, we lust after that, don't we? Woo, no more nine to five or seven to five or whatever kind of job, seven to seven, whatever kind of job you got. Just some, like people like, I just can't wait till I can move to the country so I can just get away from everybody. You know, that's what everybody wants, you know? We have this worldly idea of what greatness is. That we accumulate so much money and power that we can remove ourselves from people, not be dependent upon people, and have complete freedom over our life. But it's not what we really want. It seems appealing, but so did the forbidden fruit for Adam and Eve in the garden. It seems like that's what you want, right? It seems like to be great, we get a bunch of money, fame, success, we walk the light. Like it seems like that is what greatness would be. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Greatness is serving people. And we're scared to do that because it would just take too much. And what if they took advantage of me? There was a book I read this past month. I'm on this big, like, reading one book a week kick. I've, I'm probably reading about one book every three weeks, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting there, you know. And uh, one of the books I read was a book called Drive by um, a guy named Daniel Pink. And the whole point of the book was he was trying to find um, what really motivates people in reality based upon, like, actual studies. And not only what motivates people but what empowers people in their life to be their best, right? So all of us know we have some kind of a potential. We want to be our best, right? So this is just literally just like a secular book, right? Just like doing a study to see what really motivates people. And what they were testing was at first was like, well, let's see what everyone says money is what really motivates people, right? Like money is what motivates people and drives people in life. That's what they really want. And so they started doing all these tests. And what they began to find, which I think is the reason why they did the study, was that actually money was not as good of a motivator for people as they really thought. They thought that money would be the ultimate motivator. Like if people were promised money on the other end, that they would be motivated to achieve their full potential. And yet what the study began to find and began to put forth was that actually what people want in their place of work or in their family is not more money necessarily, but they want this understanding that what they are doing actually helps and benefits the company. That ultimately what people want is purpose. They want to believe that what they're doing matters and that they, that they want to be able to tie what they do in their business to the overall success of the company. And if they feel like they're just kind of this person over here off the side, disconnected from everything, just living on an island all by themselves, that that is not what motivates people. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, Jesus has always been saying this, like, purpose. Jesus doesn't offer you a whole life of profit, but he offers you a complete and full life of purpose. To love people. Jesus says to orient your life around being a child of God, trusting him, walking with him, and then loving people as Christ has loved us. What if the goal in life was not an early retirement, but what if the goal was to make a difference in the lives of our family and the people around us? Oh, the day if just like raising really good, healthy, godly kids and just watching them flourish in the world, that is kingdom success. 
helping someone in your life who is in need, that is success. It doesn't feel like it often, but that is success. To be great in the kingdom, we have to serve one another. That is what God wants for us, and it is fulfilling, and it is purposeful, because it is ultimately what you were created to do, and, that you, and yet you are marketed money, power, authority, notoriety. You want to be famous. Like if you're as famous as one of the Kardashians, then your life will be better. It's a lie. Because at the core of that is pride. It's elevating self above community, above the body of Christ, and above even God himself. Jesus in this text offers a life of purpose. That the greatest among us will be the greatest servants of the people around us. And the application for this is simply to commit to a life of serving and discipling people. One of the things that House and I are, are trying to set the tone in our family, and, and I'll be honest, it's hard because it's countercultural, and there's so many other things that are, are appealing. Like, like, we're really trying to set this dynamic, and it's not easy, but that, like, our family exists to serve. Like, we, our family exists to serve wider. We're here. We're available to you. We love you. We, we do it together as a family. Like, 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 we serve. We're not consumers, Other people are, but we're not, because that's not what Christ has called us to. What if the goal for your family was to be like, we're the ones who serve. We're the ones who give. We're the ones when there's trouble, we draw near. We don't back away. This is the life of Christ. And in our life, our families, and even ourselves, we will develop MOs. We will develop personalities. And Jesus here casts a compelling vision to live a life of serving people. The world says you won't be happy if you do that. Jesus says this is everything you're looking for in your life. Think about like parenting. Parenting is like the most stressful hard thing to do, most servant-minded thing, and yet in the end, you ask any parent, it's the most purpose-filled thing you could ever do. One of the really cool things this year that White Oak has done is we've kind of committed to three, like, different mission initiatives in our church. Um, you know, we, we got tired of reading verses like feed the poor and love the, the widow and, and not really having a system in our church where we actually do those things. And so what we began to do was we actually began to uh, collect homeless supplies for people actually on the streets of Houston. And in the front, there's two boxes. Every Sunday you can donate to it. And I cannot tell you the stories that we're hearing and how amazing it's been to see the things that you're actually delivering are actually taken by people in our church, our youth and other different groups in our church, to actual homeless people on the city of Houston. And it's cool because we go to a lot of the same places, and we, uh, some of, we actually get to know some of the people, which is like we're getting into the homeless community. It's a whole network, you know, here in the city. But it's interesting because in terms of the world standards, that doesn't really benefit our, our, our church very much, right? Like, like homeless people, um, they often have a hard time kind of keeping a basic schedule. Like we, we've even tried over the years, like really incorporating homeless people into our body. And honestly, it, it's hard for them. And they don't have any money to give. to the, the church doesn't grow because it opens up a homeless ministry. But it does grow in godliness and holiness and beauty. Or we think about like our global missions initiative this year. 
where we will take the gospel to the nations. And our church, we will probably spend no less than $10,000 through different offerings and through our trip of, of our church's money, of our money combined, taking the gospel to the nations. And I don't think people from China are going to come to White Oak. That would be kind of a commute, right? Like a, like a flight commute. But you can ask James. It's been like the most meaningful stuff that we've done this year. And so as we draw to a close, the only way that you could ever know this and know if these words are true is if you would actually begin to step into this kind of a life. To redefine in your mind what greatness is. That greatness here and in eternity is not accumulating power or money or fame, but it is the people that we serve and empower. Because ultimately in Romans 1 verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That in the gospel, Jesus Christ empowers you and me to salvation. Jesus is the greatest image and example of this lifestyle, of a servant lifestyle. Because when Jesus came to the world, fully God, Jesus deserved a throne, but instead chose a cross for you. Jesus didn't come to the world to chase money, power, and fame, though he could have had all those things. Jesus knew the true meaning of life was to humble yourself before God the Father, to love him and trust him all your days. And to look at your brothers and your sisters in this life and to know that you are here to serve them. You know, the common saying, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. I heard one author say that it's not even technically that. Humility isn't just not thinking about yourself, right? Because even that is still kind of self-centered. The end goal of humility is love is an others-focused life. And when we do that as a church, and when we do that in our marriages, and when we do that in our homes, love floods in. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. I'm going to give my life to this. And I invite you to do this with me, White Oak. To be recreated in the image of Jesus, humbled before God and trusting him, loving people, and finding a life that actually matters. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how compelling your call is. It's so different and it's so wonderful. God, everything that you're talking about,
talking about in this text, Lord. It's, it's exactly what the world says that it wants to achieve. It wants things like world peace and everyone to get along. And yet, God, you don't get those things just by wanting those things, Father. But, but you actually tell us that if we serve one another, that your love will be manifested in us. I pray that as we reflect on the cross during communion and your great love for us, that we would be compelled to display that love for our brothers and sisters, even at the fellowship lunch after service, even on the, the Houston highways, Lord, even in our homes, God, even in our places of work, even in our day-to-day lives, waiting in line at the grocery store, God, may we see ourselves as people who have been commissioned to love and to serve and to make disciples. God, give us a life of meaning and purpose and wonder. We love you and we thank you for these words. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.